It's a positive film. It has heroes and villains, and uh, that it essentially uh, is a fun movie to watch. It's been a long time since people have been able to go to the movies and see a sort of straightforward, wholesome, fun adventure. Well, it's a fantasy. It's not science fiction so much as it is space fantasy. And it's about people. It's about, it's finally about people and not finally about science. The story when you actually put it into words is only so much nonsense to hang a great visual experience onto. It's the stuff that fairy tales are made of sort of boiling down religion into a very basic concept. Uh, the fact that there is some deity or some power or some force that sort of controls our destiny uh, works for good and also works for evil. Marvelous, healthy innocence. Great pace, wonderful to look at, full of guts, nothing unpleasant. I mean, people go bang, bang, and people fall over and dead. But, you know, no horrors. A sort of wonderful freshness about it, a kind of like a wonderful fresh air. It's got whatever you want it to be. It's a it's pure entertainment. It's like a roller coaster ride, and it can be interpreted as long as you enjoy it, which is the intention. Hello, welcome back to Generation Skywalker as we continue on our path of Attack of the Clones anniversary month. It's fantastic and today we're going to be uh, looking at the costumes of Attack of the Clones and with me to look at these uh, exquisite costumes. I mean a lot of uh, intricate details in these. I have got with me Craig who is a costume connoisseur. Good evening Craig. <laughs> uh, good evening. <laughs> and uh, we've got Daniel, who does like to dress up in dresses. So we're win-win all round here. Good evening, Dan. Hello there. Now, boys, we've spoken about a lot of stuff on this journey. I think, I mean, certain things have certainly warmed me to Attack of the Clones. But something that always holds up in Star Wars, and that is the complex nature of the costumes. I'm sure you'll both agree with that, that they nail so much. And this this film in particular has got so many costumes. There's no way we can go through everything. So we have literally handpicked probably not even 1% of the costumes from this film to look at tonight and appreciate and cover and uh, just explore very slightly. I mean, none of us are fashion experts. Um, Dan will walk around like he's got one since uh, he uh, lost a bit of weight but uh, none of us really know much I mean if it's waistcoats Craig could tell us amazing history couldn't you Craig I mean you are yeah, they're like jackets without sleeves yeah <laughs> oh, that's basically what a waistcoat is mate thanks for that description <laughs> descriptions like that we know we're in safe hands tonight <laughs> um boys straight away do you appreciate the nature of a costume on screen oh absolutely you know it's a visual medium isn't it a, a bit like music they're, they're working very hard to tell part of the story and maybe first viewing you don't spot that you know just looking into some of these that we're going to talk about tonight they're very clearly aiding that storytelling that's that's uh, that's unfolding on screen yeah i totally agree i think the films are are much richer for what they are producing now boys just before we get into it then 
what is the one costume that if I said turn around to you, if we were just having a beer and a beer garden, I said, oh, what's your, you know, what costume springs to mind from Attack of the Clones? What would instantly spring to mind? Padme in the battle arena. Yeah, with a rip top after the uh, next rips it across the back. I never quite understand how that bit of fabric rips right off because he would have had to rip it right the way around, wouldn't he? Well, I think Padme's costumes, they dominate the prequels per se, don't they? Her her costume story changes gear in this film from the first film. I think she must have the most costume changes in, in any Star Wars. I read somewhere that she was wearing a different costume nearly every day on set. Incredible, really. I mean, Leia in A New Hope, she's wearing just a white gown until Yavin, isn't she? Trying to think yeah. what she wears, isn't it? Yeah. The days of the Empire were, were a lot more austere, weren't they? In, in every in every way, ship design and, and costumes, whereas, you know, we were introduced to Padme as a queen. Doesn't get more elaborate and over the top and than a royal. Yeah. I think she was yeah. meant to have four costumes originally for Attack of the Clones, and that ballooned up then. I think they ended up with 20-something, and I think there's like 16 on screen. Well, Lots of action I, figures. Lots of action figures, yes. I'm sure that was in their minds when uh, they're going, let's do another one, let's do another one. So first of all, then, let's talk about, about the costume designer Trish Bigger. Now, 101 personnel are credited at the end of Attack of the Clones for costume work on this movie. All the costume designs go through Trisha Bigger with her making the final decisions on the costumes and a lot of the design ideas are hers. So I think it's only right that we just give a little bit of backstory to Trisha and the respect that she probably deserves for her role in Attack of the Clones. I will not condone a course of action that will lead us to war. For the prequels, George Lucas was now telling the story of Star Wars at the height of the culture. There's a queen on the throne, so of course she's going to have that sort of royal court appearance. So he knew he needed to get into almost like fashion design. So he hired Trisha Bigger, who actually had done costuming for opera and theater out of Scotland. And she came in and totally transformed what Star Wars looks like. All this detailing here, for example, is hand done takes three, four months to do just one piece like that. So the quality of the material and the sewing and the technique is literally level of couture. Dan, I set you a little uh, a little Dick Tracy task. What can you tell me about Trish Bigger, her connection and work with Star Wars and Lucasfilm? Is this the only Star Wars project she's worked on? And what is her history within, within cinema and this type of work? So she's from Scotland. And she started doing a lot of um, TV back in the early 90s. In terms of this conversation, what stands out the most is she did quite a bit of work on the Young Indiana Jones series back in the mid 90s. And then there's nothing anywhere that says that because of that, she got the job on episode one. But you've got to assume that she had. Right. So she did episodes one, two and three. And that's probably the most famous work she's done. There's some TV stuff she's done after that, some BBC dramas. And she's recently worked on the latest series of Outlander, which I haven't seen myself. But I understand there's a lot of kind of medieval type costumes in that. So she's been working on that series there isn't a huge mountain or on the internet in terms of a, a background and you know where she started out how she got into film and stuff like that i couldn't really find very much on her but she's she's in a lot of the behind the scenes documentaries for for star wars certainly on the prequel dvds there's there's some good sections with with her on costuming and and obviously on the webisodes they did when they were doing the uh the online stuff at lucasfilm back in the prequel era yeah i think that she's quite predominant in that there is a book called dressing a galaxy the costumes of star wars i looked that up on on ebay and that book is selling for hundreds of pounds wow. uh, yeah not a book you're gonna get under a couple of hundred quid minimum and again not a lot of them are in this country they all seem to be in america or japan but clearly a, a very popular book limited to 2500 copies and only found on ebay for over 900 dollars this collector's edition is truly made for the devoted scavenger in the galaxy 
The clamshell is wrapped in Japanese silk, identical to Queen Padme's dress when she visited Senator Palpatine's apartment on Coruscant. One of the rare items included in this collector's edition is Darth Vader's cape material, an actual fabric swatches from the Lucasfilm archives. More than just a tactile experience, the large book in this box is filled with detailed information. The Star Wars prequels introduced a new era to fans around the world, revealing a more prosperous time in the galaxy. The Clone Wars had just only begun. The Empire wasn't in charge. As you would imagine, such a different time period means a change in fashion. Additionally, the prequels showed us a broader range of citizens. It wasn't just about the members of the Rebel Alliance and the Empire. We met senators, queens, bounty hunters, and more. The variety let costume designer Trisha Bigger and concept artist Ian McCage stretch their legs. Trisha goes into great detail about the choices of fabric, the hand-stitched beading, and even discusses the color theory used to deepen the visual storytelling. One of the most complex costumes highlighted in this book is Queen Amidala's red throne room gown. Inspired by Chinese imperial court styles, it took over eight weeks to complete. From rough Jedi robes to General Grievous's cape, Star Wars took digital costuming to a whole new level. The digital costumes booklet included in the collector's edition gives you a behind the scenes look to digital wardrobe design, revealing terms such as cloth sim and how it applies to much more than just fabric, but also hair, headpieces, jewelry that jingles, Jar Jar's ears, and even a Wookiee's dreadlocks. Also included is a replica Wookiee belt buckle from one of Padme's many outfits used to highlight her transformation throughout the film. Found inside the clamshell is a special edition Lucasfilm DVD. Walk into the wardrobe department and witness George Lucas and Trisha Bigger as they collaborate on specific costumes from concept, sketch, through fabrication, and how the actors react as they witness their costumes for the very first time. These four short films not only reveal secrets, but truly show how important the costumes were to the prequel trilogy and the story they all tell. Accompanied with an autograph of authenticity, a foreword by Rick McCallum, and a preface by George Lucas himself, the collector's edition will not disappoint. While this version may be more difficult to track down than Han Solo, dressing a galaxy, the costumes of Star Wars, can still be found in other corners of the galactic universe. I think anyone who was following the prequels, you know, through their production, she was a name that you, you'd be familiar with because she was she was kind of up and center talking about all the work she was doing. They, they shone a spotlight on her. And I think there was a lot of talk when episode two was in production about the feats in the digital world and how that had been progressed and how they were using that on the film. But the work that they were doing on those costumes, you know, finding vintage lace and tooling leather, you know, the detail in that. And it was all proper artisan, tangible stuff. It ran very counter to the to the, the, the digital showing off that was going on at the same time. And I, I found that quite interesting. It's a good point, though, because a lot of the, I mean, some of the stuff I saw with some of the actors saying that there is, I think Rick McCallum says it in, in one of the pieces I watched, 
much where you know these actors are all in front of green screens all day long and kind of the only thing they've got to anchor them and to really kind of have anything tangible in front of them is the costumes of the actors they're acting against sometimes to try and figure out you know what what it is they're meant to be conveying so they they play quite a, a significant role when you're acting against green screen as well all the time i think that probably helped the actors hugely i think there are another couple of people worth mentioning just to round off the team because obviously she was the costume designer but a lot of these costumes were born out of the concept stage in, I guess, character design. So you had uh, Ian McCaig, who was tasked with a lot of the, the character and costumes, and also Dermot Power, who Patricia was Scottish, he was Irish, and he was uh, uh, started his career as a as a comic book artist on 2000 AD. So let's let's look into some of these costumes. Like I said, there's too many for us to go through uh, Padme alone over the prequel. So, uh, 61 costumes and 18 of them apparently coming in attack of the clones so that's a lot of costumes just for this film so we're only going to take a handful of them and then look at them but Padme's costumes are so rich and so so delightful it is amazing so I really want us to to just pick a handful of those but Craig I'm going to come to you first you're off to Star Celebration when the show comes out very very shortly but I believe there is something representing Padme's dresses at Celebration. May's a very busy month for us we're doing this and Obviously, May the 4th, lots of announcements and general Star Warsiness going on. And we've got Celebration around the corner. And this week, only this week, the art for Artist Alley dropped. I think we're all very focused on Attack of the Clones. But one of the pieces that stood out to me was this this piece by Dawn Murphy, which is entitled The Senator's Wardrobe. And they're almost little kind of icon or infographic representations of the wardrobe specifically from this movie and what dawn says which is quite nice the senator's wardrobe is my homage to the artistry and craftsmanship that went into creating padme's costumes for attack of the clones it also celebrates the community of star wars cosplayers who always grace the halls of every celebration it's designed to be displayed alone or as a companion piece to the queen's wardrobe from the 2020 celebration art show so this is the second in a in a series of these we can expect a third i imagine but what i thought would be nice to just sort of have a look at this piece of work and pick a few of them and just sort of discuss them see if we've got any nuggets that that can elaborate on the thinking behind these costumes in universe and maybe some of the real world construction it's quite a nice image actually isn't it it's uh you see them all like that yeah right then so let's delve into we've chosen six from her wardrobe okay i mean we could have talked about all of them but We've gone with probably six of the most iconic ones. And I'm going to come to you first, Craig, and that is the travel refugee disguise when she is heading back to Naboo. Yeah, so in the story, this is Padme accompanied by Anakin, and they are travelling incognito, not wanting to draw any attention to themselves on a, on a crusty old cargo ship that's been converted to carry passengers. You see the scene, they're travelling steerage, like what's his face in uh, in Titanic? So they're not they're, they're kind of slumming it. But this costume, I would argue, is rather elaborate for an incognito flee from uh, from the capital planet. And I think there's a reason for that. If you look back at some of the the early concept designs, this particular outfit was initially destined to be one of her senate gowns, and they adapted it down the line to this peasant outfit. It's quite elaborate. You've got a lace headdress which covers this gold, like a like a I, I don't know what the word for it is. It's a big metal hat that's like a, almost like a halo. But I believe that's a, that's of a Russian design that that inspired that. I guess story wise, 
it's got a bit of a veil. You know, Padme is a famous politician on the galactic stage. You know, people are going to recognize her. So this idea that she's got this this head covering and it's it doesn't cover all her face. It, it's certainly there. Yeah, it's it's very elaborate for a refugee costume, I would say. A nice piece. I, I think if you saw her traveling as a refugee dressed like that, you'd still think, actually, the cuts look a bit too good still. Very just richly can't... textured and... and uh, yeah. I think it's like saying to the Jedi, look, you know, I'll slum it down a bit, but I'm still having a, a nice, like, snood around my neck there. Do you want some uh, couture stats on this? I would love some. Would you? Let me see how I get on reading this out, OK? <laughs> <laughs> Padme's two-part interior freighter disguise costume consists of a burgundy silk cloquet coat and a metal headdress with the exterior scenes worn over a dress of mustard gross gain fabric, which was embroidered in a burgundy and soft green all-over paisley-type pattern. When you look at that dress, I mean, just the workmanship that's gone into just that one costume, I do think it's quite a quite phenomenal, really. So, Dan, I'm coming over to you. Probably one of my favourite dresses. I like this one. It is the lake dress, the gown. Yes, so this is from the infamous I hate sand, it gets everywhere scene. This is where she starts to bear a bit of skin. So she's back on back home on the boo. She's standing up by the lake. She's got a very relaxed, summery looking dress. It starts like a, a mauve at the bottom and, and, and kind of fades into a, a yellow at the top. I think it's a muz- mother of pearl clasp around her, her neck, again in her hair. Very nice dress. I think it's made of, there's lots of silks in there, so some chiffron silk and some and some sand wash silk as well, whatever the hell that is. But yeah, very, very nice design. This is the dress she's wearing when he does the um, eeky backstroke. Yeah. yeah. I think practicality, I, I wouldn't choose it to wear. All that's fabric hanging off your arms. You know, you're asking for trouble and you're going to get bird poo on it when you lean on that rock. <laughs> she, where she's uh, standing, aren't you? We must shout out her hairstyles as well. I mean, we all know old Leia had the, the buns and Daisy Ridley as Ray had the, you know, the one style for each film. I mean, even in this film, she's got so many different hairstyles for each outfit. They really have gone to town on Padme in this film. She must have, and I reckon she didn't moan once in the webisode I watched. Like, you know, every day she's getting taken. Imagine out getting fitted for 21 dresses. It's bad enough when a woman gets fitted for a wedding dress. She's <laughs> for 21 dresses or whatever the number was. But she was a young girl. I mean, must be amazing yeah. wearing some of these costumes and, and being so elegant. And yeah, I, I always think she looks amazing in, in that. And the colours, the pastel colours are really nice. So. Do you want a little quote from the Art of book? I, w- I would love a little quote from the Art of book. This seductive outfit was part of the evolution of actress Natalie Portman's character from episode one. Natalie seemed to want to be pretty in this film and we were happy to oblige her. Ian McCabe smiled. Good old Ian McCabe. And I think that's borne out by some of the stuff she says on that webisode. Definitely. Well, Craig, let's come back to you then, because we and we move on. A lot of these dresses are around the boo and around the love story here that we are talking about. And that is the the meadow picnic gown. If I was going for a picnic, this isn't what I would be wearing. OK, so we talked. Well, I talked <laughs> quite a lot in a pseudo intellectual art school ponce kind of way about the influence of Art Nouveau on this film. And that is typified by this particular outfit. So the pre-Raphaelite painters were fixated with romantic eras and painted in a very overtly romantic style. And this one references particularly Guinevere of Camelot. So there are a couple of pre-Raphaelite paintings, one's called Godspeed by a chap called Ed- Edmund Blair Layton, and the other one is Queen Guinevere's Maying by John Collier. And 
you look at those images side by side with this particular outfit and it is you can you can see the influence there so it's this sort of fantasy version of historic record that have turned into legend and it's it's very very evocative of romance which is what they were trying to put on the screen and i think at the time there were other movies around that were also kind of playing with this idea so you look at some of the uh, elizabethan the shakespearean fashion so we had shakespeare in love we had elizabeth man in the iron mask they were all coming to the cinema around the time so there was that element as well it was a bit of a thing to do so it's a very soft outfit it's a very flowing uh, diaphanous semi-opaque thing that she's outdoors she's floating around this field like she's a beautiful vision i, I guess you know they're presenting padme as somebody ha- that you know we see her through anakin's eyes and think well how could you not fall in love with her she's an absolute vision very um sound of music isn't it that whole scene just sounds a bit sound of music and it fits that tone quite well but for someone who's not trying to fall in love with someone and yeah it just all feels like she's i think she's saying one thing but uh, uh, the way that she's dressing says something else it's going to go more in that direction as we go through this list. It's a beautiful outfit, really. I just don't know whether it's picnic. <laughs> You'd be getting all kinds of scotch egg in it, wouldn't you? And <laughs> yeah. spilling yeah. the teaser. I mean, it looks restrictive to play rounders in. yeah three out of ten for practicality yeah very true now dan quite a famous dress this is the one that i think lucas actually designed and that is the black corset fireside slashed dinner gown amazing isn't it what are we calling it we call this the dinner gown so on this on this site i have got it which is the diy the galaxy of star wars uh website uh it has got black corset slash fireside flash okay. dinner gown so you choose whichever one of those three you're fancying i would okay. say dinner gown we'll call it the the the, the, the dinner gown so I'll, I'll read i'll read this out first and i'll try and uh, make too much of a hash of it so this has been called the dinner or the with anakin gown the gown consists of a fitted bone corset bustier in black leather faux leather with a hidden front closure opera limp fitted fingerless black leather faux leather gauntlet a wide choker of black velvet trimmed with strands of black jet beads adorned with a large medallion of beads applied to the center front in a rosette like design with many lengths of black velvet cord and strands of black jet beads reaching nearly to the front center of the skirt hem <laughs> she's just wearing that for dinner it is a nice dress it doesn't it, it's so different to everything else that she wears in the film that you can tell that obviously someone else has had a hand in designing it i think it leans obviously into that whole um saying one thing and, and meaning something else you know she's telling anakin that she doesn't love him and she hasn't got feelings for him or that he can't they can't do anything about it yet she's wearing a dress like that there's a little bit more info from um, Ian McKay here in the Art of Book unlike the regal and chaste wardrobe actress Natalie Portman wore as the Queen in The Phantom Menace episode 2 designs could luxuriate in one of the great romances of the Star Wars Chronicles it's a love story McKay remarked there's a lot more of a sexy seductive element and so the costumes we were looking at didn't have to hide Natalie this time they were revealing her George really loves the genre of romanticism the pre-Raphaelite look where showing skin is more of an art we leaned heavily towards that which meant going back to the 1920s and 30s where costumes were very figure hugging but demure there was an innocence about that era and we wanted to capture that well it's, it's interesting because the other thing that I want to talk about because I'm very conscious that we're three blokes talking about the costumes of a, of a young girl you know it's all done in the interest of education and, uh, and exploring the fandom but you know there was an article that came out a few years ago there was a study done around this concept of the male gaze in in cinema and 
couple of researchers looked into this and got people to judge the standing, the the power, the presence of these characters throughout different movies and where they rated. So it was done semi-scientifically. And I've got the I've got an article here from Populist Tabloid metro which kind of sums it up in a more digestible way but i'll read a little bit out because i think it is quite interesting just to get your, your your view on it in a new study published in the journal fashion and textiles two researchers presented the results of their analysis of the costumes worn by the characters princess leah and padme who was the princess of Thede, later becoming crowned queen of naboo these two characters might look like emblems of female empowerment because of their power but a study showed that across the films both characters were objectified through costume Mary C. King and Jessica L. Ridgway from the Jim Morrison School of Entrepreneurship at Florida State University posed the question of whether powerful women involving themselves in romantic relationships meant the view or perception of them changed. King, the lead author of the study, said, For years, Star Wars has been praised in popular media for its portrayal of strong and independent female characters, but it has also received criticism for how Padme and Leah's positions of power fade as their relationships evolve. We argue that this shift from women in power to subjects of the male characters' affections is evident in costume and hairstyle changes throughout the films. The two academics used a variety of measures to assess the films, which were turned into codes. They watched the original trilogy and its prequels several times, using the code to score the character's level of power related to the extent to which they were were objectified. They looked at, for instance, the state of each woman's relationships with other characters, how much flesh they exposed, hairstyles which were observed in terms of masculine or feminine, heteronormative definitions, and also for the perceived harshness style, severity, tight or slick back and softness, waves, curls and the style. What they found was that Leah and Padme often appeared covered up when they're performing roles which require power, such as fulfilling their royal duties, leading military campaigns or engaging in politics. When the characters were shown in scenes relating to romantic relationships, they change into skimpier clothes. During power moments, hair is worn up in tight, rigid styles, whilst it's styled in more relaxed ways during amorous scenes. It was observed that as both women progressed in their romantic relationships, their perceived power decreased and an increase of objectification through greater skin exposure occurred, the researchers wrote. The most vivid link between power and female costumes come from when Princess Leah is captured and enslaved by Jabba the Hutt. It goes on to talk uh, a lot more about Leah and that and that particular outfit. I find it interesting when you look at those two examples and you look at Ray in the sequels. However, you watch the webisodes, Trisha Bigger, who is a who is a woman, and you watch Natalie, who is also being paid, but you know she's the actress wearing these things. They're both saying similar things. Ian McCaig in this book is saying similar things. It's deliberate, but it's two points of view. Mm-hmm. One's one slightly damning of it because culturally that's the wrong thing to do, but from a story point of view, it's being presented as well. Yes, it's a very deliberate thing, and that's that's where we were going with it. I just thought it was worth bringing up and just getting getting your your view on it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't think you know. Even you know, ten, twenty years ago, people were looking at, or certainly no one that I was hearing from was was talking about things like that. It was never. It was you know, things were just the way they were, weren't they? And it wasn't really looked down upon that Princess Leia was in a in a, in a sexy bikini. And I think in in the prequels, it was done very overtly. It wasn't. It wasn't like all of a sudden you were thinking, "Wow, what's that?" You know, look at Padme. She's got she's got half her clothes missing. It wasn't. It wasn't. It didn't go to the same extent that even Return of the Jedi did with Leia. Just changing times, isn't it? I mean, George. Lucas is a, well, at the time he would have been a 60 year old man and he's leaning back on stuff that he watched as a boy in the 
1950s it wasn't it was a different time there'd be no princess Leia in a metal bikini had they no. not their danger in john carter and, and that's always been an influence and it's part of the visual language and i and i understand that but it's interesting to look back on things we're going to talk about the arena costume and the fact that it was ripped in half for no reason i don't think it would happen now you are right aren't you i mean i'm just thinking about since the disney era has come in we've got a lot of women in the power and in the main roles as the antagonists in these films and i can't think of anything particularly sexual orientated that ray war that even someone like kira war jin none of them none of them had these kind of outfits did they and obviously you go back to it's quite famous with leia and carrie fisher saying that george said there was no underwear in space and she filmed certainly a new hope braless i mean you wouldn't even be able to say that on set now to a female would you no carrie fisher we saw it i think when she presented george lucas with an award at an oscars many many moons later she brought that up in her speech didn't she which is quite a, a famous speech she did you had the unmitigated gall to let that chick the new girl who plays my mother, Queen Amadillo, or whatever her name is. She wears a new hairstyle and outfit practically every time she walks through a door. I mean, I bet she even got to wear a bra, even though you told me I couldn't because there was no underwear in space. A lot of from, from the Disney era, you know, any sort of romance it just isn't there. There was no romance in the sequel trilogy. And they're probably the bits of the films when you were young, you probably thought, oh, you know, Han Solo, Princess Leia kissing. I don't need all that. Let's get back to Luke, you know, fighting Darth Vader. But it does make up a big part of what Star Wars was without even really knowing it at the time. But, you know, when, when Han Solo kisses Princess Leia, she's wearing a quilted body warmer. There's <laughs> nothing sexy. Well, and it worked yeah. real. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's not got this romantic stylization that um, Attack of the Clones has. The other thing, the other the other dynamic I find interesting, and I'm not sure what my view is on it, the cosplayers love this stuff. They gravitate to to the slightly racier, more glamorous costumes to dress up. I'm not saying that they don't dress up as Jin Erso, because they do, and they dress up as Ray, but there seems to be an appeal there to escape and be that person in a convention hall for a day. The sequels has gone a bit the other way, hasn't it? I mean, we saw Adam Driver topless several times in the sequel trilogy, ripped torso and body. Yeah, they're bringing balance to that force. It is a good point. I was only talking earlier with my wife about things like the 90s and the early noughties, things like Nuts magazine and Zoo <laughs> and Front and Maxim. I mean, you you would never see a magazine like that now on the a weekly like Nuts, which was no. just... The churn of young actresses who were expected to do those shoots. And I'm sure Natalie Portman wasn't immune from that. I'm sure there were, you know, racy lads mags editorials of, of her at the time you know i think it's a good thing that the world is moving on and we're becoming a little bit more conscious of these things yeah good i derailed that didn't i i think it was the perfect outfit actually for it to um well lodged in the next two outfits actually craig so i'm coming back to you now you've just mentioned it this the geonosis battle arena outfit i mean this is an odd one isn't it because we see padme presented as this very elegant regal senatorial character she's in disguise when she's dressed as a pilot that's a very practical outfit for a for a very good reason but then she's she she goes from tatooine where she's wearing i guess a her, her slobbing around clothes in the desert you know there's no one there to watch her or look at her or be photographed in uh, in some of these outfits and she opts to wear this this white hang on i can tell you what the visual dictionary refers to it as 
action bodysuit. So I guess she's going for to a rescue. She knows she's going to to rescue everyone. They know what they're heading into, so she's she's dressing for action. But uh, as someone pointed out on the commentary, she puts a shawl on to go out into the big, the hot deserty uh, surface of Geonosis. I think from a practical point of view, it's probably there to pick her out in very busy scenes. You know, if you think about it logically, when this costume was designed, perhaps the droid factory scene wasn't on the table yet, but certainly the, the arena battle was. And you've got battle droids who had gone from being a sort of white creamy colour in the first film to being a kind of rusty sort of uh, reddy orangey colour in, in the second film and not all these brown robes of, of the Jedis and visually it's a very confusing scene isn't it so dress her in bright white and put her in the middle of all that you're always going to know where Padme is and I think that is probably part of the reason this costume looks the way it does. There's a lot of echoes to Empire Strikes Back in Attack of the Clones. You can, I think we picked a few of them out when we were going through the film, but one of them is obviously what Leia wears in the climax of that film, in pretty much all of the film, but she's wearing that white bodysuit as well, and I think that uh, plays a little bit into it as well. I think it's a really iconic costume, if you ask me, that Padme in this film. This is the costume that springs straight to my mind. And Would you like, because I always find these really enlightening, would you like a little breakdown of the, of the costume from the Star Wars Attack of the Clones visual dictionary yes i bet you've never thought that this book was going to come in so handy when you bought it 20 years ago do you know what this was this was mint i could have sold this on ebay for at least i don't know seven quid it was pristine but it's now in the space of a month it's got very well thumbed okay so we've got a practical hairstyle for travel and action her armband signifies political service you didn't know that did you no it's got a utility belt spare energy magazines for her blaster on a utility belt right down at the bottom we've got action boots with firm grip very important when you're jumping from tall pillars onto the back of reeks uh but she's got some light shin armor on the boots so she's pretty exposed apart from her shins <laughs> just don't let any claws go near her yeah well she could have done with some light skin armor at the top couldn't she yeah <laughs> i mean whoever said the comment about oh, she's put a shawl on to go outside probably because it's a dusty environment and she just wants something that she could actually cover her mouth up and nose up at any point part of the concept sketches had a full hood did it yeah so a bit like the sandstorm um, costume elements from uh, return of the Jedi. well let's move on to the last one we're going to cover of padme and of course it goes without saying the wedding gown dan quite an outfit this one so from what i can understand this was based on a, a an antique lace bedspread that trisha bigar found and obviously they only had a certain amount of material available of that and because it was antique and they couldn't get any more team in australia produced more of it they created 300 yards of this french knit braid and um, scroll work to combine the meld with the panels that they did have and studied the finished dress with pearls in terms of the, the headdress and the uh, the veil that was a maltese lace veil with headdress made from edwardian wax flowers and beaded pearls small pearls were sprinkled over the rest of the veil sounds like it's one big uh mishmash of you know vintage material and, and and reproduce stuff in a way it's very star wars it's very old oldie worldy as well isn't it it's something you'd imagine someone in the i don't know the 18th century to get married in i'm loving you doing these uh these oh, breakdowns i'll tell you what mate i tell you i'm i'm learning <laughs> loads i'm a right Star Wars collecting podcasts they said it'll be <laughs> they said <laughs> craig what's your book got to add to that <laughs> <laughs> A little bit wet on the on the wedding gown here from our friend Ian Ian McKay. In a change from an early script, Lucas decided to end the latest chapter on a celebratory note: the wedding of Anakin and Padme. It's a poignant note for the future holds none of the carefree bliss the lovers briefly experienced in the pastoral Lake County of Naboo. 
At one point, George said the wedding might be at the centre of the conflict rather than an idyllic moment. So I knew the wedding gown couldn't be too soft. It had to have an edge. One of the things that lured me back to work on episode two was that I got very fond of Padme and Anakin from the first film. I wanted to see what happened to them. Nice concept sketch uh, work here by uh, McCaig and Dermot Power. So we'll we'll make sure all this is going in the enhanced versions because uh, I think this will be a good one to uh, put some uh, imagery over. You would all agree that Padme's costumes were pretty impressive. Ed, just push you all. Your favourite Padme costume? Irina still. It's a good. I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I think for for this movie, yeah, it's it is the iconic one, isn't it? It's the one that featured on all the um, on all the posters and got all the attention from the toy lines so it, it's the one you think of it's the attack of the clones costume for padme isn't it and obviously there is many many costumes we haven't mentioned i mean you've got the the tatooine kind of kind of pancho type dress and the tatooine cape dress with her midriff on show you've got that nightgown with kind of like a like a real heavy robe over it we haven't spoken about we haven't spoken about the the packing gown or the nightgown and coruscant or the purple robe or the you know the naboo pilot discuss there is she had so many so many iconic outfits in this and um great to uh to actually see dan's um lineup of action figures where they were all on show In Star Wars, the first trilogy, Princess Leia's costumes are very, very simplistic. They're designed to not call attention to themselves. The Empire has uh, taken over, uh, fashion has gone out the window, everybody wears grey or white in a world where evil sort of is in control of things. And in the second trilogy, the costumes are designed to call attention to themselves. So it's just the opposite. Tone it down. As I write the script, I work with a design group. I mean, this might be okay for Padme. And cut. Pretty much as I write scenes, I say, okay, I got a scene here. Set. In a romantic location on a lake, and it's going to be a love scene and that kind of thing. So I need an outfit to to go with that. As George sort of progressed with the script, he sort of realized more that he wanted to show a softer, sort of friendlier side to, to Padme. The other costumes in the first film really were about her being a queen. In episode one, she was a very formal figure and had to always be aware of her position. Last time they were so incredibly gorgeous, but it really cumbersome to wear. This one is much more about making her as beautiful as we possibly can. That's beautiful. And when Trish comes in, uh, a lot of things get thrown up because she then takes those and tries to translate those into real cloth and movement on, on the body and everything. They specifically worked hard to make them as comfortable as possible. And I really got to enjoy wearing these gorgeous, gorgeous clothes. Okay, good. That's fantastic. Which one is, what is this um, for? This is packing in the apartment. Packing? You got it just like that to pack? <laughs> Every day I'm in a different outfit. Big chop. Natalie no longer plays the queen. She's now a senator. So the costumes are, are less regal and less formal and less stylized. Why don't we put a t-shirt on her? How's that? Okay. My costumes are a little bit more revealing this time. Much more feminine, not as rigid. 
just to be a more casual, softer figure this time. Now this is um, P19, which Padme wears um, when she goes on a picnic uh, up to the shack fields with Hayden from the uh, retreat island. You know, she is going to fall in love. The costume in the hills in Nauvoo is really, really beautiful. It felt like a period piece as opposed to, you know, this futuristic piece, but it's very romantic and um, flowing. This has all been embroidered and we've laid on the little pieces of uh, roses onto the bodice just to link the whole thing to do. This is a little shawl that gets draped over the shoulders. And then there's twists of coloured ribbons in, in matching colours. Light, summery, but quite sort of fun. So she can run about the fields and the dress floats. <laughs> and then sort of with the hair, I think we made it very Star Wars-y. That was great. We have a much more romantic story so that Padme's costumes are obviously more sultry in nature and, you know, revealing and pretty. There's one costume that George designed himself. <laughs> and that was sort of the costume that, you know, I came on set and everyone was like, oh. <laughs> that was an interesting costume to wear. And it was really hard at the end of the day because the corset was so tight. They made my waist like you know, 20 inches or something. It's him. <laughs> Magical. It's the great way that George sort of portrays women. They can be powerful and they can be soft and they can wear beautiful clothes and, and that doesn't contradict her strength. I think that's great with this character. Let's sit for tight. She's this like tough, smart woman that everyone's trying to kill because she's such a powerful leader and she also wears the coolest clothes. <laughs> Let's move on because I do want to just delve into a few other characters that, again, there's so, so many. So we, we we haven't actually picked out that many to look at, but just a few main characters. Dan, Django Fett, a real significant character, quite famous armour. We recognise him because of Boba Fett's armour. Tell me about that armour and what is the differences between Django and Boba Fett's armour? It's the first time I've taken a proper look at this armour for a while and I think the thing that surprised me the most is how clean it was. I remember it being quite um, colourful, but it's actually quite similar to the Mandalorians. There's a lot of silver Beskar in there. In terms of the comparisons with, with Boba Fett's armour, I think, you know, generally it's obviously he, he's painted his green in areas. Obviously the visor on Django Fett's mask is blue. It's also got a couple of extra bits of armour. So he's got fire plates. We don't see Boba Fett ever wear. And also some shin plates and some guards over the top of his boots. And the undersuit he wears is a nice shade of purple. Generally, you know, the gauntlets and all that good stuff that's carried on now through into uh, into the Book of Boba Fett. So all of that armor's still there. The, the backpack he wore, I believe there's two different backpacks in Attack of the Clones that he wore. One of which has got like a shorter missile on it and then the uh, the longer version missile as well that obviously Boba Fett sports later on in the series. But yeah, surprisingly close to the Mandalorian's look when I had a, when I had a proper look at it this morning. Okay, Craig, can I come over to you? One of my, I, I love this design and I think there's a lot of intricate work gone into this outfit as well and that's Zam Wessel. Yeah, Zam Wessel's an interesting character character isn't she she's a she's a changeling and uh, i don't know how much of her changes i don't think she's like mystique in x-men i don't think her costume changes with her and it's one of the things just as an aside 
it's one of the concepts I'm glad that Star Wars didn't really pursue the idea of shapeshifters alongside time travel. But that's an aside. So Sam Wessel's costume started life as prototype stormtroopers and assassins. So these were created by a chap called Edwin Natividad. And it's something that he was working on. And Lucas saw this work and asked him to develop it into uh, the bounty hunter and assassin Zam. So if you look at the way her veil works with her metal uh, helmet, you can see that. You can see that it, it started life as this this visor, this T-shape. And over time, it evolved into this veil. Why she needs a veil when she's a changeling, I don't know. That's not explained in any of the in-universe stuff I've seen. But that's, that's where it started, which I think is quite interesting. So she started life as this sort of like, synthesis of a Stormtrooper and Boba Fett that they, was in the origins of the clone design. Perhaps she has a veil because she wants to hide the fact that she's a changeling. We didn't really get into it, did we? The, 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 the abilities and, 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 and rules around her, her changeability. Yeah, but don't forget that Attack of the Clones will have a 25th anniversary month at some point. <laughs> I've got five years to research it. <laughs> Zam special. <laughs> a little nugget here from the uh, from the book. Um, Lucas particularly liked the mix of materials, from battle armor to the soft fabric of the veil. The approved sketch was taken into the final Murname sculpts, um, which they went on to develop the um, the final design. A couple of highlights from the visual dictionary. She's got a director lungs breath pack. <laughs> She's been to see the mods on Tatooine. It says here bodysuit stretches to allow shape shifting. So I guess there's some there's some give in the neoprene. She's got a blast energy sink skirt. So the skirt, interestingly, that's a little that's made a little sectioned armor and was a nod to samurai. That's where, that's where that came from. Just like Padme in the arena, her shins are well protected by some special shin guard boots. Like it, one of my favorite characters outside of the uh, Padme dresses. Nice description, Craig. Nice description. Now, boys, I'm sorry I had to do this the next three, but I mean, we've just got to give them a nod. It's all very bland, but Dan, Obi-Wan Kenobi? Yeah, pretty much the same costume as episode one, really. <laughs> so it's, it's all very um, samurai, isn't it? It's taken, you know, those, those Eastern influences coming through with a Jedi. Um, he's got his tunic, his trousers and his boots, belt with some utility bits and pieces in there. And yeah, just very Jedi, isn't it? He's, he's the, the quintessential Jedi and has the costume to go with it. Indeed, Craig Anakin? Yeah, of all the Jedi costumes this this must have been the the most fun to design because you've you've met him as this little kid and then we've got to see him on his way to being Darth Vader so I think a lot of the early concept work leaned into that a lot more it was very black and you know they were looking at giving him this bobbed haircut that that reflected the uh the helmet there they sort of ended up somewhere in the middle giving him this point in time where you could see it was slightly vaderish the leather was there the dark color was there but it had some steps to go before he went full-on uh sith lord and dan count dooku a bit more brighter than these two i mean in terms of his character and i've played us all the time that book but you get a lot more background to it in there he's the you know the, the son of a I think the richest the richest man in the galaxy from Serrano he's turned his back on the Jedi and he's now living it up with, as the richest man in the world after his dad died and, and taking on that mantle and and using that obviously to influence the uh, the rest of the, the systems to get behind him in the uh, Confederacy so he's uh, very regal um, I think one of the interesting things I read when I was looking around on the on the 501st website when you've got to have your, your, your costume designed to a certain level when it was describing the Count Dooku kind of tunic it's very similar to to the um, Imperial officers 
um tunic there's some differences but they but they they cite that as kind of the the, the basis for it so i think it's quite fitting that his his costume is <laughs> eventually becomes what the the imperial commanders wear but yeah he's got you know black boots black trousers black tunic and a, and a fancy cape i think that's all you can really say about him but yeah he's a very regal character right so they were main characters that we had to mention but there's so much going on in the background i mean i watched a great bit of video where they're talking about just the background characters in certain scenes and just how how many costumes are created even on a film like this which is heavily cgi there is so many costumes and little things going on but there was a few that i think were worthy of at least noting tonight and craig i'm going to come to you first luminara unduly a quite a striking jedi altogether in the prequels you can divide the jedi into two camps you've got the council jedis whose job is to sit in a room on a little stool or a chair and look alien and interesting so i would put oppo around Sissis with his big tail in there and who's the other guy with the big neck Yariel Poof was he was yeah yeah episode one so i think they go they have some fun with those this film required lots of jedi to be quite action oriented and also be distinguishable from each other and i think that's quite a a hard thing to do given that we've established that the jedi have this kind of dress down every man plain robes monkish appearance so they had to balance nods to that with being able to spot somebody like luminara in the arena scene by her silhouette and she's got a very distinctive headdress her robes are particularly voluminous I mean you have to look at the action figure to see that Uh, if I remember rightly they sculpted that to be really kind of flowing out to the side a very dynamic figure but there's a lot of real as we said uh, at the start about the way they were focusing on some of the costumes as a a real selling point for this movie that the bit that hangs down and I'm sure this has a name the little kind of tabard type affair that that hangs down you can sort of see uh, as a robes part is the most intricate tooled piece of what looks like leather it's incredibly ornate and incredibly uh, beautiful and looks like there's been a lot of work in it she's a background character but again they get this attention this level of craft that perhaps you don't get on other movies you know even I remember reading something about Kit Fisto that's just a background character and such an interesting looking looking character and well dressed in the end became quite a he had a cult moment he took um, C-3PO out in a battle and he was <laughs> it was so much the audience were like thanks Kit and he smiles at you it's a little bit of fourth wall breaking you know (laughs) I believe he started life as a Sith I think the big tentacle head man was supposed to be a bad guy and when they developed him he looked a bit friendly he's kind of got uh, Grogu eyes hasn't he and he's just sort of got that open that big smile yeah so he's uh, so he he became a Jedi fact about Luminara yes so she's got a distinctive headdress right you might just think that's a that's a style thing or a cultural thing it's actually there to conceal extra sense Sensory organs sensitive to dryness. Right, okay. So perhaps she's a little bit twilicky or a little bit tagrutery. Maybe she's got some little fleshy appendages hanging out of the back of her head, but she has to keep them covered because they get very dry. There you go. We are learning. We are learning all the time here. Did not know that. <laughs> it's good stuff, isn't it? I love these visual dictionaries. So uh, if you remember some of the poses from the promotional shot, so she, she's down on one knee and she's she's got her lightsaber sort of cocked, so it's sort of parallel to her spine. So it's a very dynamic pose. And what the author of the visual dictionary 
what they've decided to say about this pose is that through many years of practice, Luminara has increased her joints flexibility to easily allow extreme lightsaber moves that are impossible for ordinary humanoids. So, Dan, Queen Jamilia has quite a fascinating reception gown. They wanted to make a bit of a statement with this. And I think really to show that, you know, Padme was no longer the queen and there was there was a there was a new uh, there was a new queen in town. So it's just done this really elaborate, fancy costume. Very obviously very much like the costumes that um, Amadala wore in the in episode one. And you look at I mean her makeup and everything else she's wearing, you know, she's got that I don't know what you'd call it really. She's almost like the, the Hitler moustache of lipstick, isn't it? She's just got that little bit of the middle of her lip in the centre there with lipstick applied and everything else is um is white. So uh, she's got that that motif that carries across from the Amadala days. Yeah, it's a beautiful royal gown she's wearing and a really elaborate headpiece. I don't know what you'd call that. Is it mother of pearl? Is it those uh those sections where it is? It's it's like a a, a big shell around her head. The Hitler moustache of lipstick. I reckon, yeah, don't you think? It's like it's a great line, isn't it? We'll put that on the t-shirts. Blurb, yeah. <laughs> I think it's a Japanese nod, isn't it? That they obviously established in uh, episode one and they've written it through as a, a bit of a royal insignia or, or marking. I've watched a lot of anime and I've never seen anyone with lipstick like that. It's engagery, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, it's like a concubine almost, isn't it? Or the, yeah. whole, um, that, the, whole, the whole look, yeah tiny little lips i'll take the challenge and try and find some reference for the enhanced version that look reminds me of upsy daisy from in the night garden (laughs) like she's got a flower around her head but it it just goes to show the length they were willing to go to when when you look at you know amadella had all these massive dresses in a phantom menace and for this one scene i don't think she stands up they've just gone and you know designed this this whole outfit that just looks amazing rather than just reusing something they'd already done for previous film they've just done this brand new dress you can see some of the stitching on there and the the patterns in the in the gold leaf it's, it's really intricate. People talk about Lord of the Rings and the lengths they went to on some of those costumes, but I, I'd argue that Attack of the Clones went just as far. So, Craig, back to you. The Tuscan Raiders got quite a makeover in these films. Yeah, they did, didn't they? So, yeah, the Tuscans in this uh, in this movie, they play a key role. I mean, we know they're bad guys because we've seen them in, uh, in in Star Wars attacking Luke. We know they're, they're dangerous and we're not particularly on their side. But for Anakin's story to have the resonance that it needs to have, we need to see the women and the children and i think that's what's the most interesting element of the of the tuscans in uh, in attack of the clones because the males look like we know them to look but they've introduced these female characters and children that don't look scary they're softer the shapes around her they are more i guess vulnerable they're not they don't look like warriors there's a little bit in here from the book which i'll read the art department's directive for the tuscan raider camp was for a nomadic settlement of a hundred people with a pond and animals drinking for the tuscan raider guard power reference nomadic tribes of northern iraq the tendency should not be to just draw what comes out of your mind but to look at the real world and see what's there to ground the concept in reality power explained the nomadic women of iraq wear these heavily jeweled outfits and cover their faces with veils i replace the veils with simple metal parts as if they'd been scavenged. A chorus of artists agreed that a key to the Star Wars look was to ground even the most alien ideas with the familiar. Reality with a slight twist, Mark Gabbana put it. What I learned from George is how to design something that grips quickly in terms of film design, but which is grounded in reality. Strange that when we did the uh, with Book of Boba Fett, you didn't get a lot of that look coming through into, though, you know, certainly for the children and the uh, 
and the women Tuscan Raiders all just look like Tuscan Raiders from what I can remember from Book of Boba Fett they didn't carry any of those designs in I suppose the argument is they're different tribes but it didn't it didn't come through did it which is a shame because I think potential here for a rich visual culture mm. which you see the Mando Mercs all dressing up at Celebration and they all have their own unique personal interpretations and spin on the, on the Mandalorian armour based on how the expanded universe has, has told the story of their culture and I think the Tuscans could just equally be that but it's, it feels like they took a step back in uh, in Book of Boba Fett Daniel I mean I didn't give you a specific character here but if you've just picked a couple out I mean in the Outlander nightclub some of the patriots in there there is some tremendous costumes well, what strikes you from there but there's some pretty outrageous costumes in there actually can you see the two pictures I've put in there yes the one on the right so she's covered in body paint toe by the looks of it and she's just got a looks like a see-through piece of net on it some crazy beehive blonde haircut I, did, I didn't see that in the film that's pretty risque did you not agree that's, I mean, that's yeah. beyond what even Ula was wearing and even the girl to her right there she's got like this red and yellow flame effect the whole length of her body and then you've got um, I think that's George Lucas's daughter actually as a, as a purple twi'lek I think it's to show yeah, there aren't a great deal of aliens in there the way that we saw in maybe the cantina um, but it's all very lavish and it's, it's kind of like people living the high life I think in Coruscant isn't it you've got all the dignitaries in there I think you've got the characters that Andy Daniels and Ahmed Best play are meant to they're meant to be some sort of royalty they're, they're, they're milling about in there and everyone's watching the gambling and buying drinks you've got someone else going around selling death sticks and it's just got a feel to it hasn't it it's just and it's not even like it is on um, in The Last Jedi when I go to Canto Bite in that casino this feels it's not it's not that like the super rich but this just feels like the, the middle class people of Star Wars out having a good time on a Saturday night you know blink and you'll miss some costumes but there's just so much going on in that scene but yeah when you take stills like this one where you these uh these couple of twi'leks and uh i don't know what you call this other girl i don't know what species she is no the one on the right's been quite well documented whatever uh, the action figure there's some footage of her outfit out there but yeah you're right i've never seen that uh character on the left of this image uh, yeah it is risque craig now one of my favorites we couldn't cover this film without covering her and ayla secura so twi'leks established like all these things you know you meet one of this race and suddenly personify all the other aliens you ever encounter that, that are from that race so uh twi'leks were established as exotic dancers in return of the jedi and you saw them again in episode one being companions to uh to wealthy males so they have this reputation alias cure not a character that was created as part of the um the art process um of attack of the clones but rather lifted from a from a comic and from what i can see lifted wholesale i mean the costume is, is is pretty similar but you have this challenge for the for the designers to balance this perception of twi'leks being a little bit racy but with being a badass jedi warrior so she's got the boob tube she's got the the midriff on show but her costume is made of leather it looks like an animal skin it's got a reptile kind of texture to it you've got a leather headdress so it's it's beefed up and ready for action but it's still got that Twi'lek essence would she have worked head to toe in in big heavy woolen robes probably not probably not what people wanted to see not what George wanted I think as well probably if you're if you're being honest and you look at it a bit of a template for Ahsoka in her costume when she first appeared yeah somebody would have had a word with Dave 
Saloni these days, a little teenage Tagruta in a boob tube. You can see how that might have been an influence. Definitely. Well, we could carry on and on and on, but we just wanted to give a bit of an account for some of the costumes. Is there any costumes that either of you think need a mention at this stage? I was going to say some of Palpatine's. I think he's the equivalent male to uh, to, pa- to to Padme in terms of the guy who has the most costume changes, but the, specifically the one that he wears when he's in the Senate and he takes his emergency powers. He's got the, the red coming through now, so he's almost a, to signify the dangers coming. That's a good shout, Dan, because he's another character that was very much on a journey. We knew the destination, so they had the opportunity to to flag that through what he was wearing. We, we can't really move on until we just say Watto's hat. <laughs> obviously does need mentioning the other thing i would say as well to, now we were talking watto and i think you bring it up in the commentary craig that he had his tusk removed to make his mouth talk and around his neck his his tusk is on a necklace in this film and uh, what a lovely touch I there is there that. is a story somewhere which is a very short bit about how he he scrabbled around to find that to keep <laughs> it and it is around his neck so all these little touches and thought out processes in these films lovely i bet jacasta knew but i didn't jacasta would have knew but i bet she doesn't put it up this month (laughs) (laughs) there's still time there is still time yeah i think that kind of takes us through where we want to be with costumes but we've touched on it several times today i mean you go to conventions and you see these fantastic cosplays i just wanted you to maybe have a little look through cosplay and if you could find anybody who is blowing you away with attack of the clones cosplaying out there so i found these three people who do an Ad Padme and Anakin and Obi-Wan and pretty good. I mean, all the costumes are spot on there, aren't they? Although the blokes playing Anakin and Obi-Wan look like they're wax models. <laughs> <laughs> I think there might be a little bit of airbrush going on. But yeah, they, yeah the costumes are superb, though, they're wearing. A lot of people dress up as Jedis, a lot of people dress up as Siths, but I think that, you know, there's certainly a, a big contingent at Celebration who do do the uh, the Padme dresses. I think when we was at London, Stu, but I remember being there and, and, a, and a legion of Padme's walk past all in different costumes and they were brilliantly put together. I think Attack of the Clones is very rich in cosplay potential for lots of cosplayers. You do see a lot of Padme's and that follows given what we've talked about, lots of different angles. I've seen Queen Jamelia's as well. So, yeah. uh, you know, I, I I see that side of the prequels being very well represented. The clones at this point were all very shiny and new and I think people have probably drawn more towards the ones that are a little bit more customised and they've got a bit more personality and a bit more battle damage maybe don't know whether you'd agree with that I don't see many shiny clones walking around like you see shiny stormtroopers and of course I had my own adventure in the cosplay world with what was technically an episode 2 costume uh, which was Obi-Wan Kenobi yes <laughs> and that went I mean we have touched on that in the past Craig but just take us through our story again it's an interesting thing isn't it cosplay I think you need to be cut from a certain sort of cloth to go out there and and show off for the day and be somebody else and what happened was i used to watch the celebrations from afar you know i'd experience through the through social media and i'd look at them and go "Ah, yeah i'll probably never make the trip i'll probably never go as far as america you know i'll I'll, I'll go to the ones in london and i'll do the one in essence you know what i mean and that year 2000 was it 2015 i think it was when it was anaheim and i just took the decision to just go and do it and i thought you know if i'm gonna go and do it i'm gonna go in hard I'm going to go in and do it properly. And I thought, I'm just going to dress up. It didn't come from a, a desire to be massively 
movie accurate or have my photograph taken or anything like that uh it was just from a desire to join in just join in be one of those people a a big celebration and you know cosplay was around in the uk i'm not going to pretend it wasn't but it wasn't as big you know in the states it's just up another gear so i think that was my excuse (laughs) to, to do it so you know i had a vague notion that they were pretty good off the shelf costumes you could go out and buy if you invested 200 quid or whatever it was so i looked around and jedi robe north london seemed to be the place where people got their robes from and um i contacted them and they said well the best thing to do is come in and you know try this stuff on make sure you're kind of happy with it so i drove i drove down and went to their place and they said right what, what are you after and i had the beard well it's, it's got to be obi-wan and obi-wan revenge of the sith obi-wan i think he just had that swagger i think you and his stride in that movie and that was something that appealed to me so i went and goes well you got an obi-wan and said yeah you got an obi-wan and tried it on and when you're not used to that stuff to put it on for the first time even though it's a shop bought thing and the revolution would look down their nose at you it was really cool it was just really cool to put the gear on and have the lightsaber and kind of go i feel like a jedi So yeah, I, I bought this thing and I put it in the suitcase and I got dressed up and I was very meticulous and tried to get it all to sit properly. And, you know, it's not the best costume. 200 quid doesn't buy you the best costume, but it buys you the look, right? And I went into the uh, down to the convention hall and there was the big queues and I had like the cheapest like lightsaber hooked to my belt. It was one of those ones that kind of flop out. No sound or anything, because I think the ones with sound and electronics, they have to cheat the look of them. So this was, this was okay. It was passable but it was never going to be you know what i posed with it was just there to hang on the belt and i remember they opened the doors and they let they let all these big long lines in and i ran up these stairs and because it was hooked to my belt the first thing i did was it clicked it off with my knee <laughs> clattering across this concourse everybody in the line kind of go it was, it was good natured and i loved it i just loved being character for the day and i was very surprised i was stopped for photographs which i did not expect because i didn't think i looked like everyone but i got to ham it up and pose with a few other people and hang around the prop bits and, and do some do some shots and things and it was just it was a blast i really enjoyed it i really enjoyed it and you know it was my first step into the cosplay world in this episode two obi-wan costume where the robe was a bit short it wasn't quite right but it was a blast it really was it was a blast <laughs> nice <laughs> nice great stories and uh that will be i'm sure you've got plenty of images of that so yeah jedi robe still there that's a good good little shop that for cosplayers it is yeah i'm going back uh in two weeks time my son is he's 21 he likes star wars he's not as passionate as i am by any stretch and i said to him he's got long hair and a beard i said do you want me to pack the robes and you can have a have a go he went yeah yeah go on (laughs) brilliant love it I think what we'll do is between now and doing the enhance, we'll put a bit of a best of um, Attack of the Clones cosplay showreel together just from things we can we can find. So have a look on the enhanced and we'll play a little bit of a showreel now. She's got the look. She's got the look. She's got the look. She's got the look. She's 
Fantastic, fantastic little cosplay section there. Go and check out cosplay online. There's a lot of people doing it, and a lot of these people put so much time and effort into it. It is their passion, and they do look fantastic. This show is a prime example of why we enhance shows. It's a real visual show. So head over to our YouTube channel, search for Generation Skywalker, hit that subscribe button, but but check out some of our previous videos. There's unboxings over there. Skywalker Blasts, where Craig takes parts of our shows and puts them individual so you don't need to sit through long shows at times. Head over to our social media, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram search for Generation Skywalker again there's lots going on at the moment we've got the Joe Caster new posts at the moment every day some of those have been fantastic really well done and lots going on there head over to the We Are Generation Skywalker page every day there's something going on to do with Attack of the Clones at the moment or other Star Wars stuff I mean like Craig said at the start of the show there is so much going on in May we've we've had May the 4th we've had new reveals Attack of the Clones month um, celebrations coming up which we will no doubt be covering on that page as well so lots to lots to delve into on there and we do encourage conversation over there and of course check out our website go to www.generationskywalker.com we will find links to all the social media all of the shows all of the enhanced shows and of course our fabulous blog posts but boys enjoyed this Uh, it's always nice to delve into an area where we don't really have much expertise but it's been nice looking at it still I mean, this month has been all about learning about Attack of the Clones and looking at different things. And it's just another aspect that makes these movies so fantastic. So, um, yeah, thank you both for joining me and uh, sharing with me your wisdom on this, such as it is. I think for me, (laughs) exactly, yeah. I think for me, though, when you talk about appreciation of the film and, you know, where we're going to get to at the end of all this, I think costumes is probably something I appreciate more than I probably before been successful there. Exactly, exactly. Well, I want to talk more about vintage lace. Oh, don't. (laughs) I don't know what that is. is. (laughs) Didn't he call it antique lace? Come on. Sorry. Terminology right here. There's a difference. I'm sorry. (laughs) It is for this show. And uh, as we continue on this Attack of the Clones extravaganza, it is goodbye from Dan. Goodbye. It is goodbye from Craig. Cheerio. And it is goodbye from me. And uh, our slogan of all eras, all passions and all Star Wars, I think has been well represented at the moment. And we're Generation Skywalker. 